Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Work. Guys, I'm on today with one of my buddies, one of my one of my best buddies, Dr. Dave Nickel, the host of the Blunt Dissection Veterinary Podcast, founder of Vet X International, um, speaker of the year at the VMX conference in 2019. Genuinely fun, funny, hilarious, good person, practice owner doer of the things um this is a guy that i talk to when i want to figure things out and uh when i want fresh ideas and when i want to see things from a different perspective i just can't tell you how much respect i have for for dr dave and um and you'll hear that on this episode because we get into all sorts of things dave has got more than 50 episodes of his blunt dissection podcast if you've never heard it before you need to go check out blunt dissection it really is uh, phenomenal it is a deep dive interview format with some of the most interesting people in the profession and so uh, that's what dave does and so i, I got to thinking it's like man he's done 50 episodes what's he learned what has he learned about life? What has he learned about his career? What are things that he holds on to? What are uh, words of wisdom or inspiration that have uh, hit him in the feels and that have changed the way he looks at life and practice? And so that's what we talk about today. And as a result, we have a sprawling conversation. We talk about uh, corporate medicine. We talk about uh, mentorship. We talk about growth and development. We talk about the future of vet medicine. We talk about the changing roles of doctors and support staff. And we get into all that stuff. So it really is a good holistic episode just thinking about and looking at vet medicine and where it's going. So guys, without further ado, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome, Dr. Dave Nichol. It's good to see you again, my friend. Great to be back. It's been far too long. Yeah, it definitely has. It's, uh, you know, I, I thought we were way overdue for one of our catch-up talks just about the state of vet medicine and life in the world. And uh, I also thought, you know, like we can just uh, we can two bird one stone this and I could talk to you and get your perspective, which I always like to have. And then also uh, make a podcast and share it with uh, with the world. So uh, we're going we're gonna to multitask and get get a couple things done at once. How are you? How you been? Good, good. Weird times, weird times, but I'm getting by and reasonably upbeat about the way things are headed now. Yeah. So, well, let's let's start for those people who don't know you. Um, you are a veterinarian, you are a practice owner, you uh, are an international international lecturer on veterinary business. You're one of my favorite people. You're one of the people that, that I look to and am inspired by. And you are the host of a wildly successful podcast called Blunt Dissection, where you interview people in, uh, in vet medicine and beyond outside of vet medicine, uh, high-performing people, interesting people, and sort of walk them through their careers and sort of lessons they learned. And um, it is it is very good for people who aren't uh, who aren't familiar, and that sort of brings me to kind of the context of what I wanted to set up today. You've got you've got fifty three episodes uh, at the time of this recording that are out right now, um, and you have interviewed a lot of really incredible, amazing people. And so I thought this would be an interesting time to kind of get together. I'd like to get your perspective on the whole blunt dissection sort of experience that you've had talking to these people who are influential people in vet medicine and, and visionaries and people who have been wildly important in, in you know, previous decades in our profession and just kind of get your sort of holistic view of uh, what do you, what do you learn? You know, I, what do you, yeah, what, what, are you, what have been your big takeaways? Where do you think vet medicine is going? Uh, yeah. What, uh, what are the things that, that, that you have taken and incorporated into your own life. So that's kind of generally ballpark where my head's at as we as we come on. So well, let's just let me just open up and just sort of say like what's what's been your experience as a doctor and a, a business consultant and then and and then uh then taking on this project and and doing these interviews. Um well it's I mean you know it's it's been one of the most fun thing that I could have thought to do in veterinary medicine that's 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 the first thing uh you know you, you and I live a I think quite a charmed life in some ways where we get to travel and speak and and you know use use the, the powers that we were blessed with to 
to hopefully some good and flapper gums at people. And, and a podcast just feels like a really natural extension of that. I mean, I say yeah. like my superpower is just <laughs> yakking at people uh, until they either say yes or they sort of slowly walk away, <laughs> nudge themselves backwards. Uh, but if I put a microphone in their hand, it's also like glue. They, they, there's only so far they can back away before the yeah. weed stops them doing it, and they've still got a mic quite close to them. Uh, but it's really been uh, a kind of a fun journey. Uh, the best thing about it, I, I started it with the intent that if I got like a thousand people to listen to an episode, I would be very, very happy. And if I got to 10 episodes, um, then that would be something and your know, body of work to aim at. And, and what I didn't sort of appreciate was how far the word kind of travels around networks, but, but how important it sort of seems to have become for listeners. And that's, you know, I, I do it. I don't do it for that reason. I do it for much more selfish reasons than that. Yeah. I just, I, it's, it's, I find it absolutely fascinating. Like I'm curious as hell about the way other people think and the lives they lead and and how their their story has has sort of come to be. And it, it actually, yeah, yes, we've had some very you know, amazing, extremely talented, successful, and, and occasionally famous guests on. But I, I, it's the curiosity of, of humans and the journeys that we all go on that actually drives me to do the podcast. Uh, so it's purely selfish reasons I, I, I was doing it, but it's actually also then the impact that's had on people and the stories that people contact me about the guests, you know, the things that they've said that have impacted their lives. Um, so we, we did the, the cancer episode. Uh, uh, oh, no, so, yeah, no, it was an episode. Sorry, it wasn't cancer. We did the suicide episode, and then we did another episode where we talked about cancer. And then the suicide episode, real, real, real uplifting. Yeah, uplifting I know. I know stuff. Like, yeah. we, all, we talk about you know. Uh, well, it does get dark sometimes. Yeah, you know, no, of course. I'm te- you know, I'm teasing. Uh, I did right the way but, these out, but and it's it's but the the, the suicide episode was um, heavy to sort of get into, and just having you know John Dooley was on there, and, and he was you know courageous enough to talk about it openly. Mm-hmm. Uh, survivor of. Uh, you know, of a suicidal um, moment and, and was, you know, I was fascinated if I did another podcast, it would actually, this is pretty dark, actually. <laughs> so it would be, if I could do interviews, it would be interviews with people who were no longer with us to learn what happened. Yeah. The thoughts that went on in their head. Cause I just think that would be profoundly moving, uh, probably completely harrowing, but sometimes you're just left in those moments with a, the questions that are unanswered are the ones that are the hardest. Like, why? Yeah. Um, what, what, how do how do you get to that place um, where that seems like a, you know the right option? So to have people like Diedrich Gelderman, uh, John Dooley, um, Steve Noonan be able to talk openly about mm-hmm. things like that um, felt like a really positive thing. And so you know, I got contacted by somebody after the John Dooley episode, the, the actual suicide suicide special. To give it a nice happy term who <laughs> um, uh, said that you know they were really struggling and the show was a moment for them that something that they could cling on to and you know kind of a life raft that helped yeah. them recover from a moment and then a, a, an episode where Sheila Robertson was talking about her battles with cancer and, and it, it made somebody in Australia uh, go get you know, they lived in very rural Australia and um, you know they hadn't you know they were busy like all vets are oh put it off put it off she'll be right she'll be right and then they went and got their breasts examined and sure enough they found a very early stage cancer and they could have the surgery and get it out and and make a recovery but when people contact you things like that you're like shit (laughs) this isn't just a silly thing this is this is something that becomes important to people and and but it, it doesn't become a chore because it never loses the fascination with with the humans on the other end of the microphone or why i do it it's it's amazing how powerful the feeling of not being alone is for people and how much people need it. And and, mm. and also, you know, this has sort of been a been a thought I've had for for years and years is that vet medicine is is prone to siloing. You know what I mean? Like especially you, you get into your practice and you're surrounded by the people who are right there in the building with you. But you know, there's for most of us, there's not a lot of cross pollination between practices. You you know, I, I think a lot of that 
lot of like community veterinarians have, have kind of guarded relationship. You know what I mean? You kind of, you know, we're, we're friendly-ish with those other guys in the clinic down the road, but we don't, you know, we're not, not too friendly. And I think that that does leave us a lot of time sort of in, in that feeling of isolation, especially if we have things that we we're not comfortable talking about. In, inside our practice or, or things that might be construed as weakness. I think in, in the vet culture, I think people really clamp down on that and sort of hide, hide, hide weakness. So I a hundred percent agree with what you're saying about, you know, this, this stuff is important to people. And it, it, it's, I've been shocked as well of, of how, you know, you're, you're just kind of, you're kind of making a thing and you're doing a thing and you're doing it because you're interested in it. And you, and you go, Oh, by the way, this really meant a lot to this person and, and it just kind of catches you off guard and you go, oh well that's that's incredible i think i am not i'm not convinced that you can really do a good job uh in something that you don't have a little bit of a selfish intention about you know what i mean like can you be a good doctor if you don't enjoy being a doctor right or if you feel like there's nothing in this for me i, I feel like when you when you do the podcast again for me i'll tell you anything creative that i've done if it has not been driven by selfish reasons, generally meaning I'm excited to do this and I really want to do it, it has died. Anytime that I'm like, this is a slog and I'm doing this for other people, but it's not really what I want to do, I, I have never been able to pull that off in any sort of a meaningful way. And, and I've done it many times and it's just litter, you know, graveyard of failures. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think that's one of the reasons why I adopted the, uh, you know, heck yeah or no mindset oh, i'm using the polite version of it there but yeah. um you know to 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 i'm applying that to as much as i possibly can because there are some things that are not heck yes that, that legally can't be knows like you know tax and stuff like that yeah but but the things that are you're able to choose to do like you know whether it's a guest on a podcast or uh you know a gig that you want to speak at or uh, you know, an investment you want to make in a person or in a business or in whatever, um, a relationship, whatever. It's it's just a, a, a keen sense of time being very, very finite. And I think that's probably one of the things that I've gotten from a lot of the guests as well that I've interviewed, um, particularly people when they're a bit further on in their career. Mm -hmm. Like I think one, one of my uh, favorite interviews to listen back to was the one with one of my mentors who's you know sadly no longer with us um and that's uh, john sheridan who you know he, he was a big cross channel fan like yeah. he's a massive fan of the us and i think he's one of the only british vet partner members and he was you know he's the, he was he got an honorary membership like maybe five years ago for for all of the work he'd done and in, in contribution he'd made i think he got a lifetime sort of service awards which was yeah, you know, that meant so much to him to get that. He was yeah. so chuffed out of everything he'd done, and all, and he's like he's done everything in veterinary medicine. Like he started corporatization pretty much in Britain. Yeah, uh, he's been president of the associations, you know, all of them here in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, he traveled the world speaking, and and I just like he just had that curiosity as well, and so being able to sort of speak with him and capture him and he was he was a big inspiration and mentor to me as well so interviewing him a was a massive privilege uh but b you know you just got the keenest sense of awareness of time's finite nature um when i was speaking with him and and that's one one of the things he said that was the most poignant for me was you know you know you, you haven't got all day at this and you've only got one crack so you know, get on and do it and stop buggering around yeah uh, <laughs> yeah, the thing that the thing that inspired me the most about John Sheridan. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, the fact that I, I was aware of him from a very early age, I think it was in vet school. And I think I, I, I knew who John Sheridan was. The thing that inspired me the most about him was, that, you know, he was making YouTube videos on vet business be way before you or me or anybody, you know, in our sort of generation was doing this. I mean, like that guy was the first guy on the scene making YouTube videos and he must have been in his seventies. But yeah, like as of the time uh, he was uh, making these videos, you know? Yeah. And it was just sort of like in this the cutting edge technology and people are like, what is this streaming video thing? And there's John Sheridan in the seventies, like just doing it. And, um, and he was also, so, I mean, I think it says so much about him as far as like 
it, you know, it, he's putting himself out there and doing this thing before the young bucks had the courage to, to even try anything. He was there. And he was also one of those people who, um, who just his enthusiasm for the profession bled through those presentations. And, he, and it didn't really, it didn't really matter what he was talking about. He just, he was someone that you just looked at him and you're like, that guy is genuinely stoked to be here. And he 100%. was excited to talk about this topic. And he, he's he was, infectious. He, and, and so, yeah, he, early on, he was someone that I looked to. And, like, those are two big things I couldn't help but take away from him. Yeah, no, I mean, till, till his last day, he was thinking about veterinary medicine, the model, innovation, what it could be. He was a trained first aider. He was playing, like, jazz band. Like, just all sorts of stuff. And that was a life fully lived. Yeah, I, I, I hope to be a half as. Yeah. Speaking of John uh, speaking of thinking about veterinary medicine, how are you, how are you feeling about that medicine these days? That's a big, broad question, but yeah, what do you, what do you, yeah, what, how are you feeling about uh, about our profession as a whole? Yeah, I'm. I mean, look. So there's. I mean, it is a big question. I think you have to put filters on, to, or or jump sure. around the camera angles of that a little bit. From a business perspective, I think i'm wildly excited about it yeah well, we just finished our four-year planning you know cycle a bit of a reset because covid came along uh, a whole bunch of really challenging stuff happened in the practice um rebuilt a, a team now that is fantastic uh, uh, incredible team um the start of a new four-year cycle for for the practice and the business plan that i've never been more excited to own a clinic um and and see what what a group of human beings can do uh, and and set out on a mission and it's it's so nice that it sort of dovetails in with what we're doing with vetx which is to try and create you know we try and teach people how to make veterinary medicine sustainable uh you know through leadership and in the practice that's what we're doing we're modeling it for real in the practice so to see a group of people breaking all records uh they are breaking sweat but mm -hmm. in a sustainable way working well together with a positive vibe, a positive culture. And and it's just the start. It's this it's the sort of on on ramp to where we're going to go in the next sort of three years with a, a very different model. Uh so I, I'm very excited about it. I think I think though that if I think I, I so encourage people not to say uh when things get back to normal. Because I think what COVID has done is pour a massive accelerant that's what it says we're mm -hmm. a massive kind of accelerant or stomp on the gas pedal for change that was happening that is now and this is not just veterinary medicine it's 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 pan societal sure um things have changed you know the sacred cows of business have been absolutely not just slaughtered but blown up like there's bits of cows scattered <laughs> all over the hillside uh and it's incredible i think the things that are the way things are going to change from here but you know guarding against the the complacency of you know, when are we going to get back to normal and it's it's not like the norm normal's never coming back uh, people's attitudes have completely changed the priorities and what matters in life uh, the fragility of life just as fundamental concepts have now completely changed and and people's you know, willingness to work themselves into the ground, I think, has completely changed as well. So yeah. I actually think, I think there's a massive, massive problem in veterinary medicine. If I were pumping private equity money into veterinary medicine just now, I would be very nervous about that. If I were a big ticket investor who didn't really know what was going on in veterinary medicine, and I was looking at P&L and balance sheets and going, wow, veterinary medicine looks like a solid bet. Yeah. for my money to be safe what they're not doing and what's not recorded on any balance sheet is the human debt that is building up within veterinary medicine there's a human debt bomb that's create building up and and we're in an unsustainable untenable moment where we are not producing enough graduates to even stand still let alone keep up with the pace of growth when the veterinary population is shrinking by four or five percent a year, according to the AVMA figures, and the pet population is growing anywhere from five to twenty percent, you take your pick on on what number you want to believe. But yeah. we were already in a bind, and now we have this happening at a time of massive uncertainty. So, all of that means I think old models are in great peril and are there for the takedown. 
And of course, all of this money that's getting swilled in is invested in old models, um, dependent on the next sucker buying the the group of practices beyond mm -hmm. the person. You know, so one model it's just arbitrage, it's past the parcel yeah. with a group of clinics. And I don't know if the music stopped because there's a lot of pets going around. But when vacancies and practices keep rising and they can't be filled with anything but and even with relief doctors you can't get relief doctors then your PL count is going to start looking very shady because your your revenue is going to drop your costs are going to go up your staff turnover is going to get higher the culture we know the cultural state of veterinary medicine is not good so i think there's an awful lot of work to do so in amongst that what can only be described as a shit show comes innovation yeah. And change and this is this is the breeding ground like you know like yeah. the world wars created some of the most incredible innovations that are still impacting on our day like every, everything we use now for whether it's the radio to the iphone or something like it has its roots in the necessity of you know conflict in some way shape or form um and and so times of immense stress times of immense uh demand like the covid vaccinations have been brought out incredible response unprecedented the speed with which these things have been created same thing like we're i think we're i think we're it's a it's a it's a trope is to say we're at crossroads like everyone mm -hmm. was at frigging crossroads right. in veterinary medicine aren't we we're way past the frigging crossroads and we took the wrong turn we're, we're speeding toward the bridge that's crumbling and broken down and and we don't have brakes on this thing so you know what is going to be required is some form of i i think now is the time for for innovation and people to think very differently and what we're seeing over here is uh people who are putting culture first and top and central people who are thinking technology are going to massively fragment the marketplace further uh you know the impact of what millennials will consider service care um is completely different uh, and and as boomers grow older, we know that half of them have pets. You know, millennials all have loads of pets mm -hmm. and no kids. You know, this this whole way of doing service in veterinary medicine is is changing uh, so quickly. And and veterinary practices aren't, but some of them are. Yeah. And those those guys, I think, are going to do well. Uh, and when I say guys, I mean that in a very gender neutral yeah. way. Oh yeah, um, of course. So I, I I think it's a really upbeat time. But I think it's it's a uh, it's a challenging time for an old model, which I, I just don't think fits fits the well, purpose. Anymore. Growth growth is painful. Now you and I are, are are definitely in alignment as far as you know. When I look at it philosophically, I see opportunity everywhere. I, I really like. Mm -hmm. I'm like this. This is great. But yeah, it, it's it's a painful time right now. But necessity is a mother of invention. Let's let's yeah. let's play the futurist game for a second. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's let's gaze into our crystal balls, and I'll I'll trade with you. Uh, and and let's make some predictions for five years from now. And I want, mm -hmm. I'm interested, you know, we can both say, you know, things are going to be really different and there's some innovations. Uh, I, I'm interested to, to just just go back and forth with you a little bit. And I want to tell you kind of what I'm thinking and, and you can shoot it down or, or not. But, uh, but And then I want to kind of hear what you're thinking. So think about it like a five-year frame, not like a 25-year, but like five years yeah. from now. And so I can't think in 25-year nah, frames nah. anyway. Well, I mean, it's it's easy to be. Oh, one day we'll get there. I was like, no, nah, I'm talking about five years from now, right? Twenty twenty six. Like, it doesn't seem that far away. Twenty five years from now, we're all dead from global warming. So I should worry about that. <laughs> twenty five years. Dark. Rapid. Dark. I know. It's like I'm going like, to bring Elon Dave Musk on. Be flying his way to Mars, and we'll all just be fighting with clubs. Oh yeah, everyone with a billion like dollars will leave in their phallic uh, airship, and. <laughs> The rest of us will be left. What is with that? Left. I just, I tell you what. Highly you, aerodynamic. Oh, I, it is. Unfortunately, it is a very aerodynamic shape. All right. Back. Let's go back. All right. So here, here, here's, here's the first thing I would say. Um, yep. Prices for pet owners are going up significantly in the next five mm. years. I mean, I mean, yep. significantly. And I, I, I don't like it. I, I don't see a way around it um, because I think as you were, as, as you and I've talked about, I, I think people are, are, looking at their lives and their careers differently after COVID. I think that we for a long time have kind of um, put off taking care of our staff uh, from a wage standpoint compared to to other industries. And I think that ultimately, oh, I, I'm optimistic that we can get more efficient uh, or come up with new ways of service that are going to make the numbers work. But ultimately, I think we're going to have to pay our staff more. And I do think that that price is going to get passed on to pet owners in the next five years. Do, what do you think of that? Yeah, look, I, th I think 
this is interesting to reflect back on that Bear Brachy study where they're really starting to see the that the the elasticity in pricing was not so much there anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that, that John you know, John Volk was sort of saying words to that effect. And and now we see like you know <laughs> name name drop moment. But you know, just we're just about to drop an episode with Marty Becker on on blunt dissection, which is the most riotous conversation I've had. Which, considering I've had conversations with you, <laughs> is putting it <laughs> somewhere. But yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's, it's a proper banger. I'll say that much. Um, but one of the things that he said was, you know, that healthcare fifty percent of American families can't afford veterinary care anymore. Yeah. That's a lot of pets that are we are pricing ourselves out of the market with. And you've got, so I, I don't know, if I look strategically at the forces driving that, then um, yes, there is wage inflationary pressure. Um, but the, the problem with that argument is there isn't an awful lot more to go around. So you can want as much wage as you can, mm. but unless you're able to generate that revenue, it doesn't exist or you don't have a profitable business. And, and we do not have uh, an insurance-driven model to the extent that medics do, that dentists do, that lawyers have. Um, you know, we're, we're one of the only professions and it's profoundly the case in, in America that, that that is true. Here, here we have a higher percentage of insured animals, but even here it's still only about, I don't know, 20, 25%. Yeah. Maybe 30 when it was a good day. Um, so but but so that helps, but it doesn't solve the problem. So you've got that, but and also people, we're seeing a lot of people wanting to move more into a lifestyle, almost not, you know, almost kind of a gig economy, which I think mm-hmm. is a non-starter for 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 the reason the word is trust. Like I don't care if I jump in an Uber where the person is uh you know, their background in taxi driving school didn't right. really matter to me. And I don't care if it's a different person each time drives me. And, and I have an urgency. I have to get from A to B very, very quickly. So I don't really care. Veterinary medicine, a lot of it's discretionary. ER care, I think, could be that way. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you're in a fix. You're like, oh, yeah. my God. Like, I'm going to take my pets to the urgent care clinic. I think that is a thing that's going to be huge. Uh, the emergency clinic, that kind of thing where... On demand, you need that, and you can get doctors to plug in there. Um, I'm not commenting on the quality of that setup from a medical point of view, because frankly, I think it's a train wreck. I don't think that's a good thing for quality whatsoever. But from a customer point of view, I can see that working. For a general practice where uh, where trust matters, millennials, do they care so much about that? Probably not. They're much more willing to do things on telemedicine. But trust still matters. This is a fur baby, mm-hmm. like that term or not. And relationships matter, and they will always matter in in human interactions. So, I think I think there's a driver on price from people that want that work life balance, and relief is a good way of offering that. So you can just plug into somebody else's system for a bit, get paid well, and then you know you have your downtime to recharge and have a life. That is very attractive to veterinary professionals, but there's issues with tax. There's issues with supply and demand. There's you know. That, you know, it, it it works right now, but will it work when numbers catch up and things rebalance? I I don't know. But it's a price pressure that practices. The only way you could afford that is by putting your fees up, and none of the clients want to see the relief doctor because they're not the regular doctor. There's issues with that. Yeah. So I think you've got wage fl- inflation pressure. I think you've got uh, quality driven demand pressure from the market, and you've got very you know you do have a liquid market, even even though. COVID has been hard. People haven't been spending tons and they've saved or whatever. So mm-hmm. There's liquid, liquidity in the market. So I, I, I agree. I think prices will go up, but I think that the veterinary medicine risks leaving a massive group of pet owners behind when they do. They're, we're already there. Yeah. So to go up further, and, it's, and no. it's going to become the people who already can't afford it, they're the ones that are going to get the hardest. Like we're, we're moving into this ever polarized haves and have not society. Um, but there's opportunity there, man. Like, uh, I, so agree I, that, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. So 100% with you. And, and again, my concern has been pricing pet owners out of medicine for a long time. Like, you know, I, I'm in the yeah. exam room like you are, and I, you know, I have these conversations. And I see it. I completely agree that it is going to squeeze uh, pet owners, which is, which is why I think that, you know, we have this wage pressure that we, we have is I think we've resisted raising wages. Uh, and we do that by 
and we do that if there's a good reason to do it it's to help try to keep services affordable to pet owners and and, and so i again i go back i don't think that veterinarians or greedy veterinarians I, aren't paying their staff i just i roll my eyes whenever i see that even implied it's like no 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 this is this is just people in our industry trying to make it work and balance the needs of the staff versus the needs of the pet owners i think that in the next 5 years we're going to roll this over and practices are going to prioritize the staff over the pet owners which i don't i i, I don't and it's obviously different across our across our profession, but I think a lot of practices have prioritized pet owners over their staff, and I think that you may see a shift in that. And, and to your point, you said, you know, what do, what do people want? That you know, we're looking at practice culture. I would say part of that is 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 building and taking care of our people, and so I think that's part of the upward sort of price push. To your point, I, what is going to happen to those left behind? I, we are not stone hearted. We're not a stone hearted group. And so I, there's going to be some, there, there's going to have to be a safety net that's going to unfurl underneath that. I don't know if that will be a rise in nonprofit uh, organizations that will help with veterinary care. I don't know if that will be limited service vet uh, facilities. I think that a lot of vets are not going to like that when they see it spooling out. But I think that if we're going to raise prices on pet owners uh, to provide sort of white glove service, um, we've got to uh, allow or even facilitate low cost options for people just to get the basic services. Because I don't, I don't think any of us have the stomach to leave these people behind. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the days of Harriet and the general practice are, are done finally. I think, I think that's the thing that COVID really did was sort of finally nail down that all creatures great and small thing. And you, you, regulatory, there's a lot of pressure on regulatory things right now with telemedicine. Also, the pressure, like the pressure to talk about putting customers first ahead of staff, that biggest pressure it comes from the regulatory framework. I think mm-hmm. that you know you can't say no. You are you are you you are absolutely. If a, if a customer walks into you and you say no, you've got a problem. Uh, in in many many places, um, and and there's a, so there's a there's a legal pressure on you, but then there's a whole moral pressure on you as well as a veterinarian. And you, you know we've all experienced that. Well, if if you really cared, you'd do it for free, kind of thing. Um, that those those pressures, I think those things need to be looked at such that you know things like twenty four hour care, so a veterinarian can't switch off, is in this market I think inhumane. I understand the need for it. I understand why mm-hmm. why it should be there, but I think you know it, it. You're saying without any sort of network capacity or market capacity to be able to deliver it, that it's still incumbent and necessary. On, on a veterinarian or business owner's shoulders yeah. is hard and especially hard in rural areas where they can't get veterinarians to come into practice. Here's like, so here's what they, here's what they should do, fix rural. Make veterinary ed- education, certain scholarships where they're there. Those fees are funded mm-hmm. for people. It's like national service. If you want to get a veterinary degree and not pay for it, commit to doing the same number of years you spend at college in a rural location, yeah. you'll be trained. That opens it up for a much more inclusive access to people who cannot afford veterinary medicine because this is such an incredibly elitist uh, profession. There's, there's, there, there is no more uh, monochrome, mono, non-diverse profession on this planet, I don't think, than veterinary medicine. Um, open that up so that you can kill two birds with one stone, help uh, improve access from across the country, all of our countries, Mm-hmm. to underprivileged communities who will then go back to serve those communities for a period um, and debt is paid. Uh, yeah. it, you know, it takes care of many birds of one stone. And and so, well, like we're nowhere near the prediction anymore, Andy. We just sort of jumped off into... No, no, we're... Again, that, that sounds like a 25-year uh, thing. But no, I, 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 think <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's a good point. I don't have a prediction in the next... I guess my prediction in the next five years, talking about being dark... I don't see anything changing in the next five years in uh, in capacity for uh, veterinarians, right? Like okay. there's no school opening up in the next year that's going to be producing a lot more veterinarians. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not even sure that's the answer though, because we we've opened up since I since I've uh, come. We've got uh, when I graduated, there were seven schools I think in the UK. Now there's ten. The class size is so that Nottingham's new, not really new anymore. Surrey 
you've got Keel Harp Radoms. Uh, you've got another one slated coming on stream now. The class sizes are all 20% to 100% bigger. London are doing two cohorts a year, like mm-hmm. they're doing two intakes in a year of veterinary school now. Yet we have got this increased dearth. Like the problem isn't throwing, the answer isn't throwing more meat at the grinder. The answer is fix the grinder. And the grinder is leadership thinking about how we deliver the system of veterinary medicine and how we lead our people and create culture. So I, I love when you said, you know, we have to put our people first. I, I think I think we will. I don't think we can do it to the, I don't think we can do it to the point that people from a financial point of view um, I don't think it's there in the system. I'm not totally sure I agree that it's not practice owners being greedy. Um, and I'm certainly not sure of that when it comes to corporations because they have an absolute commitment to shareholder value. Yeah. Like there's something completely at odds with veterinary medicine there. That's it's one of the biggest elephants in the room. You can say what you want about um, you know, the, the values that, uh, that a, a company has, but a company's number one legal responsibilities to its shareholders yeah it's not to the animals it's not to the pets that's the veterinarian's number one responsibility but they're an employee of the company and therein is the immovable force you know meets the you know or the immovable object meets the irresistible force that's the conflict that's the challenge and that's where uh private equity and um, shareholder owned businesses they're always going to have that conflict and it's not just veterinary medicine it's, yeah. i think we're particularly exposed to it because as you say we care we don't want to see these people left behind because that means animals pets left behind yeah i mean that that hurts our hearts oh totally when you can look at human health care to sort of see what what that potential pain looks like as far as uh availability but but most of those guys in human health care i think this is one of the differences for us they see us they see a fragment of a patient's life in in an utterly disconnected disjointed system yeah you know they're not like us like you know, how many vaccine cards has a doctor actually signed for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years in a row mm-hmm. where they've become uncle or auntie? I'm sure they exist in rural locations as the sort of general practitioner, but that's not most of the medical care, medical system. Like your nephrologist doesn't see a patient die. Yeah. That happens in a hospice. Just, yeah. So I think there is a coldness in medical care. Like, if, if you, like whenever I've been in med- medical care, I felt like a number bounce around and when i've watched my family being i look kind of gassed at friends and family I'm like why don't you know the answer to that simple question oh the doctor didn't tell us and they don't know to ask yeah. and you just think goodness me it's a it's a mess in human health care we we're we're so unique in in the way we've been integrated into families lives and and i think that's changing and that comes with its own burden Right. And that was the Harriet time. I think that's going to change. And we're going to lose something special when it does. Because I think that's that's certainly what's driven me in my career. That's what I've enjoyed the most was that connection with clients. That being a part of their family was what made it made you take those harder yards and be willing to push yourself a bit further. Jamie, tell me about your, your favorite cat. Um, you're not supposed to have favorites, but I do. Her name is Calico Jack, and she's missing her upper uh, and her lower canines. Um, and she's just a delight. Uh, Calico Jack and the rest of your crew all drink from the Filaqua uh, water system, correct? They do. I like to... Tell me about it. I, I love it. It's a smart system. So every time the cats come up, it registers their microchip and it tells me how much they've had to drink in a given period of time. So I can make sure that none of them are drinking too much or drinking too little. Yeah, the uh, Falaqua is from Sure Pet Care as part of their connected ecosystem. Guys, uh, this has been something that uh, Jamie and I have gotten to play with for the last couple of months, and it is super cool. Uh, we know that water intake is a huge flag for uh, for disease and uh, illness in our feline patients, and we want to stay on top of it, and we want pet owners to know uh, what their cat is drinking. This is a great approach to it. If you want to learn more, head over to surepetcare.com slash water. That's surepetcare.com slash water. I'll put the link in the show notes. Hey guys, just want to hop in real quick and give you an update on some interesting stuff that's coming your way on September 1st. Stephanie Goss, Stephanie, the practice management goddess Goss. My co-host on the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast is doing a workshop on pay scales. 
The workshop is called She Works Hard for the Money on Setting Pay Scales. It is on September 1st from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. That is 11 to 1, uh, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Pacific Time. It is $99 to the public. It is free to Uncharted members. Check it out. Links in the show notes. Um, Let's see. We have got, God, we got a lot of other stuff. The Uncharted Podcast. This week, we get back into general practice versus ER. And Stephanie and I tackle that uh, topic. And we talk about managing through it. What do you tell your team about working with a local ER? How do you get them to uh, to communicate effectively, set expectations with clients, uh, have a good perspective on the ER and what they're going through? How should we be treating each other? How should we be talking about each other? Those are the things we get into in this episode of the Uncharted podcast. So if that's of interest to you, definitely check it out. It's a fun podcast. I really love it. Stephanie Goss is amazing. Guys, that's all I got. Let's get back into this episode. I want to unpack some of the corporate medicine stuff that you alluded to earlier. You know, I think you you sort of said you know that where there's this uh, it's an ar- it's a game of arbitrage you know it, it's about it's about buying practices and then getting bought by someone bigger and I think we I think we both see that and that's a that's a sort of a classic consolidation cycle right we know how this goes right. it, it comes right. to an industry there's a sort of a buying frenzy people get big and get bought and and you can tell that there there are some players uh, who are owning multiple practices now who intend to stay and actually run these practices. And there's other practices or other groups that are buying practices and they fully intend to not be here in five years. I mean, and that's, that again, that's classic consolidation cycle. I would sort of say back mm-hmm. to the futurism game, it was like, we're going to have nowhere near as many entities, I don't think, in five years as we have now. I think the ones we have now will be larger and I'm really interesting to see what business models they run. You know what I mean? What, what their business model looks like and how they run. I think right now, as far as the corporate stuff goes, we're really in a, a big time of, of flux where people are kind of trying to figure out what is this going to look like after the consolidation cycle is over. The, the, the amount of money that corporates are paying for practices right now is just unheard of, uh, just, just completely unheard of. And again, to me, it, it sort of has bubble written all over it. So you, this is just not sustainable. In five years, I, I think that we will have sorted this out. I think there'll be 25% as many players as there are right now, and there'll be bigger players. And I think that we'll sort of start to see some stability in that regard. But I don't exactly know what it looks like. Do you have thoughts? Well, our our, our markets on the other side, this is what's really interesting looking at the, the, more, the global picture. You know, we're at sort of, I don't know, somewhere between 60 and 70% corporate ownership here. So mm-hmm. there's genuinely some areas that have local monopolies. Like around my practice in London, I think there's two independent clinics. Everyone else is owned by one of three practices, uh, two practices, um, completely surrounded. Um, and I'm 100% fine with that because mm-hmm. I know we'll, we'll look after our people better because um, we've got different board level morals and values at play. Um, but looking at what's happened here and looking in the US, they are different. Like there aren't a number of practices that consolidators are that interested. And I actually think there's going to be, my prediction is that there is a massive, I think there's a huge opportunity for people looking to move in and take on those smaller practices, one or two doctor practices where they can buy out or get good terms from uh, somebody who may want a massive payday, but corporate are not going to be that interested Mm -hmm. uh, because it doesn't make sense to them to have that practice. And, and there's a grassroots movement of people, younger generation, you know, VBMA uh, people who are going to go out there, I hope buy practices and, and have an excellent opportunity to, to do something that is at the end of the market where I think the, the strategic play is go, very low cost, high volume, or go very high touch, low volume, and be that sort of shishi. Or embed yourself in the community with a limited number of services and make use of urgent care emergency. And you will have a great life as part of a clinic. And you know, and and I, I think that's coming. So I think that's one of the trends. I would I would say five years from now, the corporate frenzy, it's always they're always they're always saying when you speak to anyone consolidator, oh multiples are gonna drop, multiples are gonna drop. They've been saying that for the last four years and the multiples aren't dropping. They're getting higher. Like when when I'm hearing getting twenty times 
the malt pool for yeah. a single site practice. Yeah, I heard 17 times uh, mm-hmm. EBITDA not long ago, and you go, this this, this does not make any sense. No, uh, I, I'm, I've, I've heard from three different countries now, a 20 EBITDA malt pool. And I'm like, how on earth does that make sense? It only makes sense when PE are going to flip for 30. And yeah. even that doesn't make sense because somebody's got to buy that as an end user group. That's why I think there's a big problem on, on those balance sheets. It's not on the balance sheets. It's it's it looks great, but it's not sustainable. Like we're 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 currently, you know, business is booming, but people are breaking. Mm-hmm. And and there I agree with you hundred percent. There is not the cavalry coming to the rescue of not just the vets, but the technicians. Because the vets yeah. can't do their work without the technicians. And and so if revenue drops. Uh, and they've pay, they're paying those multiples, then that does not look good. Like they need steady, slow growth. So they're going to get it by M&A, acquiring, acquiring, acquiring. Uh, but somebody at some point, the music stops and that's going to be a problem. Uh, that's one prediction I think is that, that that someone is going to be left carrying the music at some point with these multiples. I agree it's a bubble. Another prediction is that somebody is going to get, get in there and start rolling up the practices that are smaller. I know people are saying that's never going to happen in America, but I don't see any place else for it to go when all of the bigger prices are gone. And they're doing it here. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I think that there will be entrants into the market who will look for those fixer-uppers mm-hmm. um, and, and will start to, to group those practices up. Um, so I, I, I think consolidation will continue apace. Uh, until such time as you know, if there is a whale and a, and and something goes wrong and a, a bubble bursts, then so be it. But for as as long as more people are willing to put money in veterinary medicine, that bubble will keep growing. Yeah. And wow, veterinary medicine is proven to be so incredibly resilient. Like for for if if you're if you're in practice now, you're riding a wave for the next ten to fifteen years of pet ownership. Yeah, pet boom. Um, you know, this is a boom time. If you can look after your people. It's, well, it's a happy time. Yeah, you can't, it's a horrible time. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think that's a good I think that's a good interpretation. You know, I, I think I think this is good for uh, for the entrepreneurs as well. I think if you're a young doctor and you want you want to do your own thing, um, I, I God, I think you got so much opportunity. I mean, I, I really think you can oh, hang yeah. your shingle now, really, and and, and you know you can be you you can be price competitive. I, I don't think that people are. Or we're, we're not in a place where corporations have such a monopoly on price that you can't compete. In fact, again, as we talked before, the corporate groups aren't, they're not incentivized to, to keep prices down and put people out of business. You know, if anything, those groups often, you know, push prices, push prices higher. So I, I think that you can get in there as a, as a single doctor who wants to do your own thing. I think you can hang your shingle out. I think you can start your own practice. I think that you're going to see a lot more doctors moving into uh, concierge medicine, like you talked about, where you say you embed yourself in a community. You say, I'm going to take uh, 2000 clients and this is what the monthly fee is going to be. And mm-hmm. just, and that's, that's a model in human medicine. And, and again, you, you know, I think that you can partner with an emergency clinic or, you know, um, I think there's ways to do it. And that could be a really neat little lifestyle business, house call yeah. businesses, um, uh, the, like the hospice care veterinarians that we're seeing um, relief vets, I, you know, you mentioned that earlier. Um, I think, I think you're going to see a lot more doctors trying out relief work. And I actually, I'm a big fan of relief work as a phase in your life. What, what generally what I found is, you know, you have a vet and they'll go to a new place and they go, I don't know where I want to work. Um, or they go, you know, I, I'm not happy here. I don't, I want to try some different things, but I'm not exactly sure. I think to your point earlier, if culture has become so important for most of us, I don't want to work in a, in a place I don't fit in, you know, I, or no. I don't want to work in a place where I'm, where, where the staff isn't treated. Well, I just don't want to. And so relief work is a great way for doctors to be like, I'm going to go and see a bunch of practices in this area. And generally the, the, the cycle I see with relief vets is they do relief work for a while. And then ultimately, they kind of find the practices that they enjoy going to and they look forward to going to. And, and you know, usually that means those practices also like them and enjoy them. And it kind of, they tend to fall out of relief work and back into more regular work. And I, I think that may be a normal, healthy thing. Yeah, I, I, I do. And I, I think there's another really un, untapped talent pool that's out there that, that we've failed to create something for that, that we're missing a trick on. And, and that is the... You know the mums who have family mm-hmm. who have you know when the when the kids hit school age um, 
have got a huge amount of talent that's not not necessarily been in practice, but is is a resource that that you know the stories you hear of practices that will not take people on unless they're in some sort of full time role and they're unwilling to adjust schedules around because well if they get it why don't I get it mm-hmm. you know like if, if they can have the cushy number well yeah well it's it's, uh, it's kind of how you sell it because if we don't have this person then you know then you run off your feet and ragged. Yeah. Like, I don't think that that's as hard to sell perhaps as it was. So I understand why people perhaps have reservation about it, but, you know, fitting, fitting, uh, fitting shift work around the shape of people's lives. And, and I, I even hesitate just to, just to only say it's about, um, you know, women who've got families. It's sure. anybody who's got commitments they want to do outside of veterinary medicine. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much everyone. It should be everyone. Like, it, 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 well, it really should be. Yeah, I think that's a good point that is you've understood there, but is is worth the podcast in of itself. Yeah, um, for health and and well being. But but yeah, I think I think that yeah, to your point of the young vet who wants to have a crack now, I just I seriously don't think there's been a better time in the last fifteen yeah. years. Yeah, it's... I mean with the technology we have with the you know, you know, probably not dancing on TikTok for your pet owners. Yeah, like, I wouldn't recommend that. But but certainly the use of communications technologies, they, they, yeah, just everything. The, the suite of tools that's now available in the cloud to the business owner is so powerful. Yeah, the ability to reach and communicate with clients, the the ability to express yourself and tell your story, it's never been stronger. And the uh, you know the availability of pets, like man. Like I, part of me is like, geez, I wish I was like five years out of college again with what I know now. Like you just go have some fun. Um, <laughs> isn't luckily, that, isn't luckily, that the unfair part of life? Is like, you're really, really, always like, God. Well, it is. But somebody, else, somebody said to me the other day and said, hey, can, um, we've got this idea and, you know, we're thinking about doing this thing and, and you know, we need a CEO to come and do this thing. And, and I was like, it was a hell yes or no. I was like, if I wanted to be doing that, I'd already be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's really, as I'm, I'm doing exactly what I, I sat down with a bit of paper. I'm like, if I, if I could do anything I wanted, anything I wanted, what would I be doing? And I'd be like, I would be writing books. I'd be podcasting. I'd be speaking at events and I would be run owner operating businesses. Like I just love doing all of that stuff. So why the hell would I change it? Yeah. Right oh yeah. No, I, I, I had, the, I had those thoughts recently. I, um, uh, you know, just just watching uh, veterinary practice owners that I know sort of sell, sell their businesses. And then, you know, you and I both know uh, Justine Lee and Garrett Pat- Pattinger who uh, own VetGirl. And and so they they sold VetGirl to Mars Company recently. And and uh, and, and I, I, I love those guys. But it puts, it puts me up in my head to go, huh, is that is do I wish I was doing something different? You know what I mean? Or is that something? I, and and I, But I went through that sort of same mental exercise and I thought I did. I, I, I love what I do. And I, you know, and I don't, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cash it out for, you know, for anything else. And, you know, this is, this is how I want to feel my day, uh, fill my days. And, you know, one of the things that attracted me originally to vet medicine is the autonomy that you can have as a doctor. You know, you, you can, you can be a relief vet. You can, you can work at this practice or that practice. You can go into industry. You can work for a pharma company. You can work for the FDA. You can go and, and get into uh, food animal medicine if that's what you want. Like you can, you're not tied to anything forever. It's like, I just, I love that freedom. And I think now more than ever, the ability to sort of create something that you want to create is incredible. I think, um, I think, and you, you sort of sparked this in, in my mind, but um, I think one of the most underrated challenges that's out there that I think can be, I think this can be broken, and I think it will be a boon when it is, is the flexible scheduling in veterinary mm-hmm. medicine. I, I think the practices that figure out not, not maybe not short scheduling or, you know, or, or weird scheduling, but how do we give both doctors and support staff flexibility in their scheduling so that they can get to the things that their kids are doing or, you know, or they can have some freedom to move their schedule around and still put in hours when they're able to put in hours. And I go, guys, there's so much potential there. And you see that and jump back to the Uber model that you gave earlier. That's one of the things that people love about Uber is you just turn it on and -hmm. you're working. Imagine if you could just turn it on and then you're, and you're, seeing some appointments and then you just yeah. get them, you know i'm good and you turn it back off i don't know how that magic wand works but but in that direction i think is something beautiful 
Yeah, there's models out there that I think, you know, the fragmentation that started, you know, more than a decade ago is, is continuing a pace. And, you know, so you're seeing not just vaccine clinics in the back of trailers and sort of baking hot, you know, grocery mall you know, parking lots now. You're seeing quite high-end, well-done practices as chains showing up that will do wellness only and carving off that bit. You've seen um, Mary and Danny doing lap of love, you, you know, end of life care, carving off that. Dentistry, that's coming. Like I, I'm gobsmacked. Like that's the one regret I have in practices. I didn't start up a dental only chain of practices because I like someone should just do that. You know, because hugely profitable. Loads of people hate doing it. It's abundant. It regrows. It's like an oil field that refills. You know, every like year or two. It's just a massive opportunity. Uh, you know, what else? You know, you're you're seeing not just ER but now urgent care fragmentation within fragmentation that's that's the way that we're going to uh that some degree of flexibility but that's siloed some degree of choice you're getting that there is is you know you have to get to a bit of a model where that bit doesn't depend highly on trust and i think there has to be some bit of our system you know that's the thing that i always look at human medicine i think they are missing the person who joins the dots between these services. So it's, that, it's how you end up with patients who are on like 20 different meds because everyone's treating their one little thing in the silo and nobody's overseeing it and going, uh, why, like, why are you doing that? Like this thing, that's the side effect of that. Now they're, now they're, now they're going to see this, this doctor over here to manage side effects of this thing here. And nobody is speaking to each other and you end up with patients that rattle with humongous bills. Like in veterinary medicine, I think the role of the general practitioner, that family GP role, like I, if, if there's a role I would champion, it would be that. You know, the reason I ended up in veterinary medicine, uh, yes, all creatures great and small, but films like Doc Hollywood uh, and the, the show, do you remember the show um, Northern Exposure? Yeah. And there was Joel Fleischman up there. I so badly wanted to be not Joel Fleischman since he was kind of like dorky, annoying, but I wanted that job so badly. Yeah. And, 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 and now I like, now I really don't want that job so badly. Uh, but it, you know, that, that being a part of a community, it's so special. And that's the, the, the change is all exciting. The streak of sadness I have is that I feel like we're going to lose that. And, and, and I feel like that's the beauty that so many of the younger doctors out there haven't connected with is are the, the, the patients and, and that's the thing i hate the most is seeing how badly beat up clients are getting and it you know and, and it's horse and cart i mean guys i firmly believe that that for as long as we beat up clients and we think the clients are the enemy the clients will respond to that in the yeah. way that you know that's the response to us it's like cats like it's like fear like you you approach a cat like you don't like a cat and that cat's going to maul you um, or you approach it like it's a chihuahua it's going to maul you you know they're if you approach it with a fear-free mindset and you approach it like it's a cat, mm -hmm. you, you'll do much better. And it's the same with clients. You approach a client like you want to spend time with them and you value them and, and you, you, know, you treat them well, they'll treat you well. You, like we're all mirrors. Yeah. The, I, think, I think the greatest challenge, my, my greatest hope and wish for this profession is this. Um, I agree with you about the importance of being involved in the community. Um, you know, and, and as I've gotten older and gotten into my, in, into my forties and I really started thinking about like, what am I doing here? Like, what does all, all this mean? I think um, community is really undervalued in our society oh, right now. Yeah. I think, I think being part of your neighborhood, part of, of your town, you know, I, being someone who, who contributes I think it's deeply rewarding and, and, and sort of meaningful. And I think it really gives us a sense of purpose. I guess my greatest hope and aspiration is that we as veterinarians can figure out, and I think we can become, I think we can become more integrated into our community and at the same time, possibly less available in a 24 seven capacity. And so I, I think that that takes some real thought and work but I'm not convinced that we can't still have relationships and, um, and 
be important members of our community and really integrated into the fabric of, of our of our surroundings and without being available 24 you know 24 7 and so I, I agree i agree with you i think i think on one and one end of the extreme, we have James Harriet, where people just came to his house, you know, <laughs> like they just they just came and knocked up like, hey, I know you're in there. It's three in the morning. I need you to come down. And, you know, and the other end is you have you have the human you have human health care where you see, you know, a gastroenterologist of, for one thing, one time and you never see them again. I, I think that there's space in the middle. Um, and I, I, th- I think that we can live in the middle. I, I think that there's other things that we can do to to bring value to take care of people that don't necessarily mean that we as individuals have to hand out our cell phone, be available, take call, things like that. Mm, yeah. I mean, the middle always feels like a really shitty place to be. Like I think if you're in the middle, place. you're going to get your ass run over. I, I think, I think it's the best place. I, I, I really do. I think, I think, I think most of life is the middle. I, I, I really, I think it's, it's not raging about, um, uh, uh, the clients are are bad and staff is good or staff is bad and clients are good. The truth is, look, everybody has hard days. And you know what I mean? And my staff's not perfect and my clients aren't perfect and I'm not perfect. And yeah. we're going to balance this, right? Like uh, we need to pay our staff more or, uh, or, or, or keep our prices low for the pet owners. You go, well, you know, we're, I, there's, you know, there's middle ground in, in there. And so the middle path is, I, I think it's the best, but, but you do have to, you do have to have some good boundaries. I'll yield that in a relationship or in a debate on anything on social media way. I do believe the middle is a good place to be there, but I don't believe it strategically. And I think that's more, you know, being stuck between different healthcare systems. I'm just, I'm instinctively, and I can't tell you why other than I think we've occupied the middle for a long time. And that's why things have, the, the middle's getting smaller. Like I, you ever feel like you're a polar bear sat in an iceberg and you're just watching, well, there goes euthanasia. Well, there goes vaccine. Oh, oh God, dental's gone. Like dental's gone. That's that's 10% for a lot of practices. And, you know, if you, if you do dental well, it's, it's 20% in your clinic that, that just goes. Drugs. Food sales, there they go. Like, you know, what's left if you're in the middle? It, it has to be bundled up in something that is very, very exceptional and not middle. And that's what we've not done very well as, as a profession. And that's what I think now, I think that is the biggest opportunity now. Young vets doing boutique or highly community, I do love that word, Annie. Highly community are going to freaking crush it. Yeah. And and the buying power of corporates will be negated by their inability to maintain and retain staff because of cultural issues. Yeah. Um, I just don't see that filtering down from the very top without an awful lot of hard work and commitment. And I don't think the capacity is there. And I'm not convinced the will is there. Well, I've always been a big believer that um, it it means something for it to be your baby. You know, mm-hmm. like having yeah. someone on the ground who really genuinely yeah. deeply cares about this thing. Uh, yes. I, I think that that's not, that's not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. It doesn't fix all the things, but no. that I think that that is, that is an advantage that the independent entrepreneur in vet medicine will always have is that you're there boots on the ground uh, with the clients and the staff talking about something that you care about. And I go, I mean, that's, that's hard to replicate in scale. And so it doesn't mean that corporates don't have other advantages, but that is one advantage. I think that is uniquely belonging yeah. to the, to the independent veterinarian. Yeah, agreed. And, and, you know, I don't want to come off as absolutely slamming corporate. Like they're obviously no. doing, there's plus points to that as well. Working in there as, 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 as well as taking a pet there, you know, there is massive networks, availability of referral the investment in technology. There's things that are very, you can't compete from an independent point of view on that mm-hmm. basis, but, but we're not really talking just about championing independence here. We're talking futures and trends and things. You know, I, I, I think those that those places will drive very interesting changes and, and opportunities. And, and th- those guys are the most likely to solve the flexibility workforce yep. issues as well. I agree. Because, because they will have to, there will be a necessity. Um, but they won't compete on personalization of service, cool marketing locally, and carrying the living shit out of those 2,000 people that, that become friends and family to you. Yeah. 
I think it's. I mean, I I think it's it's a beautifully diverse, uh, you know, playing field. So anyway, mm-hmm. all right. Well, Dave, thanks for taking time. Thanks for uh, talking with me today. I always enjoy catching up. I don't uh, I don't know how many of the world's problems we actually solve, but uh, but I I always leave with a ton to think about, and today is definitely no exception. Where can people find you besides the podcast uh, Blunt Dissection, which uh, you can pick <laughs> up wherever you listen to podcasts? Uh, where else are you doing things today? Well, first thing, thanks for having me back, Andy. It's always a very thought-provoking session, so I, I, I appreciate the chance to have a wee blather. And the best best place, every, everything I'm doing is published at vetxinternational.com. So all, all the podcasts, all the articles, everything you'll find there if you're interested in leadership and um, you want to you wanna, you wanna learn how to, how to, how to have a, a thriving career in veterinary medicine, that's probably a, a good start point. Awesome. I'll put links down in the show notes. Thanks again for being here. Thank you very much. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. I just want to give a special shout out to those who wrote online reviews for us this week. Uh, MDH224 says, Dr. Andy, keep it up. Love this, which I always love to be encouraged. And uh, ChrisCatwoman94 says, uh, very helpful for a new vet. I really enjoy listening on my way to work. It gets me excited to start my day with a laugh. Um, I've already been able to put a bunch of the things I've learned to practice. Guys, um, I love it. This stuff just lights my fire. And, uh, you know, and honestly, we obviously read, uh, read the reviews. And so if you got something to say, let me know in the review. Uh, tell me what you love. Tell me what you'd like to see more of in the future. And, um, guys, I'll try to do that for you. So anyway, writing reviews is one of the nicest things that you can do for us. And it just helps get the name of the show out there. Anyway, gang, take care of yourselves. Be well. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>